Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. Uh, seems like some, some stuff's happening on, on the television shows. Yes. Yeah. Things are happening. Yeah. Um, um, should, should we just dive right in and talk about these two television shows that are uh, that, that are happening? Yeah. All right. So we're talking about Mandalorian. We'll talk about Watchmen. And if you're not watching those shows, um, you really you got you to rethink things. But otherwise, uh, all right, let's, let's just start Mandalorian. Yeah. Mandalorian. So this was chapter four, right? Correct. Correct. Did it have a subtitle? Uh, if it did, I didn't. I didn't see it. It's the one where Gina Carano gets introduced. Yeah, I think was the title of this one. Um, that was definitely it. Yes, yes, the official title. Um, yeah, this was this was an episode of The Mandalorian. Yeah, it was very much a standalone kind of fillery. Yeah. Episode. I mean, it had some cool stuff in it, but it. I mean, once again, it's like this is a pretty by the numbers like side quest yeah yep <laughs> and you know very much once again like minus some of the continued complaints i have about some of the action style it you know well filmed and and it was done in a way that was interesting and engaging and fun uh i wish we've gotten a little more just of anything yeah but but the mandalorian continues to be a video game <laughs> this is true like it's it's like, okay, now you have, you know, you got through like the tutorial level and you had the big like escape. And now you, you know, now all of a sudden you've been given access to the open world. And the first quest marker is like, you know, go find a place to hide out for a while. And then it's just like, oh, and then you go to a planet and then you get roped into a thing and you meet a new party member and you have to have a showdown against the boss fight. Of yeah. The ATST walker. Yep. Um, uh, I mean, it's fine because this is the sort of thing that like, I, this is what I feel like what we signed up for when we signed up for the Mandalorian, like he's a bounty hunter on the run, like he's going to be, and it's, it's styled after a Western. So he's going to be going from like town to town and kind of solving people's problems reluctantly, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the formula. They're sticking to it. And trying to offload this baby Yoda on anyone but him but yeah but he doesn't really want to offload baby Yoda I mean he's so cute how how could you ever want to yeah I know it was it was, <laughs> it was um I sat down to watch it and Karen was like I heard there's something in it like he eats soup or something in this episode <laughs> like call me when he's when baby Yoda comes on and I'm like Karen he's like a, he's kind of a main character in the show he's gonna be on all the time it, that's like that's like saying like it's like if I was gonna sit down and watch Friends, and she was like, "Tell me when the Ross parts happen." <laughs> um, but so I, I, she watched a couple scenes, and then all of a sudden she was like, "I'm just gonna watch the whole episode." So Karen has go. now seen Mandalorian episode four. <laughs> Who knows if she'll stick around for more? Well, yeah, I mean, Baby Yoda's big draw. Yeah, uh, no, Baby Yoda's fine, and I really like the fact that it's a puppet. Mm-hmm. Um, just the scene where they're in the cockpit and just the the way that the light and shadow plays off the puppet just looks so much better than the way it would work on a CG character. I, it, it, so it's, it's just so much better. Can I tell you about a really weird dream I had, Greg? I, I mean, I guess go ahead, get started. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was last night or night before, but I had a dream that like we were meeting up to hang out and you were like, 
you came up to me and you were all like, okay, we're about to embark on a, a major thing together. And I was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And you were all like cagey and weird about it. And you're like, I talked to John Favreau and we're in charge of the next season of Mandalorian. And I was just like, what the fuck? He's like, also, you need to take care of this. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, uh, basically like if baby Yoda was like a cat, and I had to like, that was what the puppet was, but it was alive. And I had to like make sure it was taken care of because that was what we're using on set. And I was just like, that's pretty much the, the set of the dream. But it was really <laughs> fucking weird. <laughs> so clearly you were just like catching the headlines that have been circulating about how Ryan Johnson is is interested in, in work, you know, having some part on the next season of Mandalorian. And somehow that got in your brain, probably. And you're also thinking about like, okay, Greg and I are going to record. So all these things are getting mixed up, but I just love the fact that like <laughs> that John Favreau and me like talk. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I, I've heard some of you guys' ideas. I've heard some of your half-baked nonsense on that podcast. You want to take over my giant show? Also, baby Yoda is real and you have to take care of it. <laughs> It was very strange. Uh, I woke up very confused. Because <laughs> it was one of those dreams where, like, it felt kind of real, you know? And you're like, you, you don't, like, mm-hmm. wake up and you're like, oh, I was dreaming. Like, wait, what am I doing? Are we starting this? Do I have to quit my job? Like, <laughs> and you wake up stressed out, like, shit, we've got episodes to write. <laughs> I can't imagine a worse even, what, Do you just do it in Word? I, what even software package do you use? <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was, that's basically uh, the extent of what I have about the Mandalorian. <laughs> no, this is really good. I, I liked, um, what's the actress's name? Gina Carano. Gina Carano. I'm not familiar with her, but she was, I would like her character. Um, I think we're going to see more of her. Yeah, I get the impression that now they're a, they're a team. Well, she said she was sticking around, though, didn't she? I don't know. I, I, I kind of I, I, I kind of got a little distracted at the end. Yeah. But I got I, the, yeah. I think what's going to happen is he's going to run into a couple of different people and then they're going to make like a party some yes. point in the show. Like, I think we're going to like meet him and they're going to go away for a little bit. Kind of weird in the context of like a galaxy spanning adventure. But, you know, whatever. It's fine. But that's Star Wars, right? It's Star Wars, whatever. Um, it's, it, it, it's a galaxy spanning adventure. But um, but like the second most powerful man in the Empire uh, who's searching for his long lost super powerful force son is and that son happens to be hidden away on the same planet that the uh that Darth Vader grew up on and is being watched over by his like Darth Vader's brother maybe uh, it's like it's all it's all a very it's it's a very big galaxy but it's also a very very small galaxy everybody's I mean, related it all takes place on like three different planets maybe we could all say it's it's like the will of the force right Fate, no, stop. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, it was fun. It was fun. I the cla- sort of classic plotline of like, you know, oh this this girl's India. You better you want to stick stick you know, stick around and plant roots and whatever. It's like, yeah. no, I'm the gunslinger. I gotta keep on moving. I felt like that developed way too quickly. Yeah, agreed. I I, I felt that was rushed and like I don't. I get it. Like, he's not there's been nothing about his character so far that makes me feel like, oh, he really just wants companionship and to settle down. Like, I don't I don't need this right now. Yeah. And also, um, he needs to be with the if he's going to if he's going to be with somebody, if he should be with the Gina Carano character. Like, yeah, that, she's a badass. Yeah, she's she's gorgeous. They have a lot in common. You know, they seem yeah. to have a rapport. Um, the, um, the like training montage was pretty Oof. like, I was like OK, I, I saw it and I was like. 
it, it started and I was like, okay, fine. We're training the villagers to fight off the bandits. Okay, fine. I get it. Like, I've seen this formula before. And I'm like, I hope, uh, you know what? That's fine. They're setting me up. They know this is something I've seen before. There And there's going to be a twist, right? And I was like, just as long as we don't do a thing where they're teaching the villagers to fight with spears. And we go through one of those things where the... The, the montage of they're sloppy and then they're getting more disciplined and then they're all stabbing in unison. I was like, please don't do that. Please don't. Oh, no, they're doing it. And that was a little disappointing to me because that is something that like I've seen so many times that now if I see it, I assume that it's a setup for a punchline. Yeah, um, it's such shorthand for standard training montage. So I thought that was a pretty big miss on their part. Yeah. Um, One other thing that I think was weird in this episode, and this is I think me thinking that like this is where like. If it was a little longer, they could have built up the stuff with the, I don't, I don't know, they gave her a name, like the villager that she, yeah. she was talking with. But like the fact that she was like really competent. Yeah. She knew how to shoot. Yeah. And She's I kept waiting fighting. for them to fill that in. Yeah, they didn't. So I'm just like, okay, I guess we're just getting more of that. So once again, if this was a 45 minute episode, maybe they could have actually, you know, had to reveal like, oh, she was also in the rebellion or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, who knows? And and, but, and that was something I really liked about this episode was that it was kind of showing life on the ground post Endor a little bit mm-hmm. of like, so, you know, one, this, you know, like where Mandalorian and Gina Carano, who I know she has a character name, but I've forgotten it if I even heard it. Like they're having just this kind of like shop talk about, you know, you know, like, oh, what, what, what did you do after the war? You know? Yeah. Um, I thought that was really neat and it just felt kind of um, naturalistic and and cool and like a, just like a nice casual conversation within the context of the Star Wars universe that, you know, really worked for me. Um, and then, you know, like, oh, like there's this this tribe of Urukai have, you know, like they've they found an Imperial Walker and they're using it like so there's like there's tech and weaponry from the Empire and the Rebellion just kind of out there and it's. You know, and it's changing power dynamics of people who are unaffiliated with it. I like that. That that's seems right. That seems realistic. You know, that's the sort of thing that sometimes happens after the collapse of a of an empire. You know, these non-state actors get their hands on heavy weapons and, you know, might use them for bad stuff. Yeah. Also, Cara Dune is her name. Um, Cara Dune. So, very Star Wars name. What I really liked is just hearing the words like post Endor on like it yes remember like it just this is what i so let me start it rekindled for me like what i love so much about like the original expanded universe is just like i like to your point i want to see the aftermath i want to see what happens like how does this stuff break down like there's always a what comes next right and that was one thing i didn't like about i haven't liked about the sequel trilogy is there's just no connection besides the fact that it has Luke Leia Han and the rest of the crew in it. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's no, like there is a story, but it's not explained on screen or anything where it's just like, Oh, the empire, you know, whatever it's like in the crawl, I guess. But like, it's not, it just, it just feels like a whole different story with some people we know. And that's not, I like the connections and, and the ties to like, yeah, like when, when things go, when things collapse, like there are results and it leaves people in different circumstances than they would otherwise be in. Someone like Cara and like, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have a war to fight anymore. So what does she do? She's kind of just bopping around like, OK, cool. Let's talk. Let's explore more of that. And Right. She's become another just kind of mercenary bounty hunter type hiding out on this backwater uh, planet. And yeah, I think there's, there's something 
about the sequel trilogy where, you know, there was this cataclysmic event. And even in like in general Star Wars lore, like they start numbering the years differently after the Battle of Endor or the Battle of Yavin. I guess, you know, now it's now it's, you know, that's year one BBY versus year negative six BBY. You know, it's like that kind of cataclysmic event. And then 30 years later, when we arrive at the time of the sequel trilogy, everything has just kind of come back around to where it began. Right. (laughs) Everything is very much the same. But and one that just feels kind of lazy and sloppy. But two, you know, when you look at something like in the Song of Ice and Fire world, you you have these big climactic battles or political maneuvering. And in the aftermath, like alliances shift around mm-hmm. and OK, House Terrell, who used to be on this side, they're now on the side of those guys. And now these people are working with these people. And this house was totally decimated. But now a couple of their people have gone over to this team. And it causes these shiftings in like the larger motivations of the forces and the composition of things. And you get these different coalitions that develop and it creates a much more interesting dynamic and a much more realistic and believable dynamic rather than, okay, there's this big thing that happens and then yada, yada, yada. And then it's back to, oh, it's not the rebellion and the empire. It's the resistance and the first order. Different things. like You know, like it would have been so much more interesting if it was, you know, now you've got this coalition of, you know, like the all of the military leaders from the rebellion who are all like military guys they've sided with the um you know the money guys from the empire and they've formed a new coalition with its own political ideology and then over here you've got the more spiritual pacifistic side of the rebellion who have you know, um, who have made peace with the, you know, with the the spiritual elements of the of the empire. And it's like the kind of Jedi and the kind of Sith. And they've actually they've actually formed an alliance because they need to to survive versus this other more materialistic block that's formed. And it's it's, it's these political realignments that are much more like in keeping with the way the world works, where um you know, like in America, we are potentially in the midst of a political realignment now. But, you know, you saw political realignments in the 60s when the North and South sorted on the issues of civil rights and all these things. And it's I don't know, but it feels like this show is kind of doing that a little bit more. This show doesn't care about the larger politics of the galaxy, which is refreshing. But when you see things like, you know, and and Cara Dune, gonna keep saying it till I remember it. Um, she's talking about like she even just uses like some little slang for like Imperials. She calls them imps or something like that. At some point in conversation, you're like, yes, this is the kind of stuff. This is the stuff that happens. And you know, she talks about like, oh, she was doing military stuff, and then the politics got involved. And I was like, yay, yay. Things are yeah. a little bit more complicated than <clears throat> the guys with the white capes versus the guys with the black capes. Yeah, and it's I kind of had a realization. I don't want to go on tangent too hard about this, but in thinking about like, you know, I don't want to beat it at horse with like my criticism of the force awakens just being like, you know, you said it exactly. Just like, let's just try and redo this thing because it's easy and it's star Wars. Right. But I think the mistake they made is trying to continue on. And this is 
mean, once again, I'm always going to have to compare it to what I know, but it was just the old EU. But like, I think the mistake was to try and make it another trilogy episode, like tie it into the Skywalker saga. And now they're doing that. At some point, they like, I'm not sure if they just changed their mind or what, because that wasn't advertised until for this last movie. But to kind of try and say, oh, no, it's all one big nine movie story and it's the Skywalker saga and blah, blah, blah. And like, I kind of feel like that ended at Return of the Jedi and it should have like it should have stopped there. Not that Star Wars should have stopped there, but like I'm not saying you can't have really interesting, compelling storylines of other things, but like trying to just ramp up the stakes, but at the same time, try and keep it kind of narrow to what we saw in the original trilogy. I think it was just a mistake. If they just would have picked up and said, and like, they could have had the characters, you know, Han and Luke and Leia, whatever, they all could have been there. It could have made the same time skip, whatever, but like paint us a new picture of what the galaxy looks like, which is what the Mandalorian is doing to a certain degree, even though, like you said, doesn't care about it at all. It's still doing it through good filmmaking, right? Like you can you can tell a lot about a setting and a context and a time without like info dumping, right? Mm-hmm. Like just through little things people say and the way the world looks and what's going on in the background, right? Like it implies things about the state of the world, worlds in this case. But I just really feel like they they really just wanted to double down on like the Skywalker connection. Yeah. And I just feel like they could have still had Luke in the goddamn movie, but like as shown by the old you, like you don't have to make it only about him and telling the same cyclical story over and over again. Cause like, and to be fair, like the prequels don't tell that story. It's a very different story in the prequels. Not that it's necessarily the best story, but like it was different. Right. right? And that was okay. It didn't make it not star Wars. I mean, for some people it didn't because of the quality thing, but well, like, yeah. but like the story itself, the outline of it doesn't make it not star Wars. And I think that like, I don't know. I mean, I was reading something with it for JJ Abrams talking about basically trying to talk around the fan backlash to, uh, last Jedi and Ugh, you know, fan yeah. backlash. last Jedi was the best one. I know. I know. But, but just like it, the way he talked about it, it's just like, well, you know, like some people and he, he, just basically didn't say anything but basically just like well it wasn't really star wars to me either so we're gonna change it and that's not what he said but that's kind of what he implied and it's just like star wars is this not that i'm like why do you get to decide that yeah jj abrams thanks guy you're like you're nostalgia laden like it was just his age i don't know where it's just like i I wouldn't even call jj abrams work nostalgia laden jj abrams his uh, force awakens was not nostalgia it was just references we talked about this a little bit like a thousand years ago when we talked about the first season of Stranger Things in the way that Stranger Things actually plays on nostalgia because it plays on a feeling of a time as opposed to things that play on quote unquote nostalgia, which are just references to something else. It's it's just the J.J. Abrams, the, 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 the Force Awakens, it didn't call back to the feeling of the original trilogy um it just was like hey remember that ship from from before remember hey look her doll looks like luke remember that it's it's just it's references it, it it's all surface level um the mandalorian actually i think does a much better job of capitalizing on star wars nostalgia because it is rooted in the feelings and the texture of the original trilogy in a lot of ways it feels like it 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 is of that era and it is of that sensibility as opposed to just 
you know, mimicking the signifiers. And also mimicking like the story itself, right? Like, okay, well, Star Wars is a group of ragtag rebels trying to take down a much stronger force and they've got a big super weapon and, you know, all these boxes check. And it's like, no, that's not that's nothing inherent to Star Wars. It's just happening to the plot of one of the movies. It's just like. I just find that very frustrating right. and the the decision the, the loops they went through to get there, basically resetting the galaxy back to what it was, it seems like a step backwards, right? Like in the first movie, you know, Force Awakens, they destroy the New Republic capital and the whole entire New Republic fleet. It's like, boy, that's convenient. Like now we're back to where we were right. beginning of New Hope. And like, that's stupid. Like it's just, it's right. just trite and redundant. And I just, I mean, I could see a whole different movie where not even saying you have to pull something out old you like a brand new movie right like keep ray the way like keep elements of it like have ray be there but have it be in the context of some like imperial war- warlord and that's you know has carved off a couple planets for himself off in the far rim of the galaxy and leia's there as general like trying to mop him up like that's a thing that and then you could have a very similar story without the super weapon and where she meets ray and they you know, stormtrooper defects, like the whole thing, but you don't have to like frame it in this redundant story story arc. You know what um, actually would have been a cool way to start up the new trilogy rather than just pressing a big fucking reset button? Um, you could have like what would have been kind of neat is if now it's thirty years later and the New Republic is you know they're powerful and. They're basically still mopping up remnants of the Empire, but like all those ex-Empire people are almost – they haven't built a, a whole new Empire that with a different name and more red in their color scheme just because, you know, the Nazi imagery wasn't strong enough. Just more red. Put some more red in there. Um, but like they haven't done that. But now they're almost like – they're like a guerrilla terrorist organization and maybe – you know, um, Ray is is part of some new order of Jedi Knights who are like hunting down these guys. And she has a crisis of conscience because all of a sudden she's feeling like, oh, man, are we the bad guys now? Because yeah. we're just we're like hunting these these people down. And like that would actually kind of be a neat way to start because you introduce a little moral ambiguity and um, and you've allowed the power dynamics and the politics to shift over those 30 years and you're also making everything that was that you're not completely invalidating everything that happened in you know in episodes four through six because basically you know luke did all of this and all the other rebels did all of this and took down the empire and then 30 years passed and then nope guess they didn't yeah (laughs) because reasons right and yep. now all of a sudden we're getting to this to this last movie and it really looks like, oh, yeah, no, the emperor's not dead either. So really nothing happened. Nothing was accomplished in episodes four through six, which is shitty. Yes. And makes me mad the more I think about it. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's just ugh. OK. Anyway, so I need to move on because I'm going to get really mad and we're going to be here all night. But I have one other note about the Mandalorian. All right. That happened several times in this episode. Oh, that yes. I'm, I'm seeing more and more often on this show. And I just it. Why do intelligent? I mean, like fighter type people like Cara Dune and then the Urukai. Why are they just punching him in his big metal head? I don't know. Like that just seems obvious. Don't punch the he's got a big metal helmet of like the the best shiniest steel in all the galaxy. You're just like punching it with your bare hand. Like, why would you do that? 
Yeah, it's real dumb. It's so dumb. It bothers me every time I see it happen. I'm just like, and stop doing that. And I would like, if early on one, like, dumb goon-type villain, like the, like, again, like the Uruk-hai guys that they were, that they were fighting, like, punched him and was and then like you know did the oh oh ow my hand thing yeah. but like she's punching him in the head and it looks like it's hurting him and number one what's the helmet for number two she's shouldn't you don't punch the big shiny metal part seasoned warrior yeah right. it's real dumb yeah and it's it, 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 it's just bad act it's bad fight choreography because we talked about this last time like because it doesn't assume a level of knowledge and expertise on you know like she would know not to punch him in the head and they're also not thinking it through whatever fine moving on yeah no i it's just the fight the fighting and the combat in the show is not well done and makes me sad because that's part of star wars you know and uh well yeah yes i mean I was actually listening to um, a video game podcast and they were talking about um, it. Was, I think it was uh, Jim Sterling's podcast, Jim Inquisition. He was talking about the Jedi Fallen Order game and among a bunch of, uh, you know, interesting critique of the video game industry and what Fallen Order means. But one of the things he talks about is that one of the things this game gets right, that Battlefield 2 or not Battlefield Battlefront? Yeah. Battlefront. Got wrong was that like basically Star Wars was never really like about the action and the battles. It was about the characters. Mm-hmm. So good Star Wars games are generally like more character and story driven because that's what Star Wars is. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And then I thought about that a little more and I'm like, maybe one of the problems with modern Star Wars is that they're trying to make it into action movies when really it's more like fantasy movies that are more about like characters. And maybe that's one of the reasons, you know, that things tend to be going wrong, but also because we're not we don't come to these things for action. I mean, yeah, I mean, a great um, a great battle is is good to watch. It's fun. But. Is that what we're coming to Star Wars for? Um, you I don't know. know. I, might, I mean, I might disagree a little bit. I think there's some stuff in there that I think stands out. Like, to me this day, and I've said this before, like, the space battle at the end of Return of the Jedi is something that is still has not been topped as far as, like, a big space battle, in mm-hmm. my mind. Despite all the movies we've had in space and sci-fi movies and stuff, shows, whatever, like, that, whatever it is, and part of it is probably, like, the, you know, the effects, right? Like... Just like the combination of like pretty early CGI, but with a lot of physical and painted things, it makes just it makes it look really feel really real miniatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I do like Star Wars is they are action movies for sure. And well, I think the action is part of the draw. I think you need both, though. Well, but I, I mean, yeah, but it's it's this. I mean, the action is Im- important in so far as it serves the story. Yes. As opposed to an action movie where really the story serves the action. Yes. In that context, in that definition. Um, yeah. You know, like when you think about like, I guess for me, like thinking about thinking about Last Jedi, right? There were two major lightsaber battles in that movie. Um, there was the fight in the throne room with Rey and uh, Kylo Ren versus all the red guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was the duel between Kylo Ren and Luke Skywalker. And yeah, the throne room battle was much more like actiony and really, really well done. An excellent action sequence um, in the way, not only in a, from a technical perspective, but also in the way that um, the action was also showing you Ray and Kylo Ren's relationship, you know? 
Did mm-hmm. a great job of all that and the way the, the backdrop is disintegrating as it's happening. It's all doing a very good job. But the one that really mattered, the one that like I would say had a bigger impact on me was the duel with, you know, between Kylo Ren and Luke, because that served the story and the themes so much more. But there's not much to it action wise, you know, mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that, you know, when you look at even the, the final duel, um, on Endor between, uh, Luke and Vader, yeah, the, the, the action is more like fast paced and kind of riveting than say the first lightsaber duel we see in the Star Wars movies with Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader. But, you know, the, what you're watching for there isn't like, oh, wow, what great camera work and what cool choreography. It's more about your, you're seeing how Luke is becoming more and more like angry and impulsive as it goes on and he's getting carried away. Like, that's what it's about. You know, you're seeing all of his frustration and you're seeing him get closer to the dark side in that final battle, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's about the characters. And I feel like that's what we come to Star Wars for. And when it gets too far up its own ass with the action, we're distracting ourselves. And I worry that J.J. Abrams, I think he was too keen on doing a lot of cool action scenes and kind of forgot that it's really more about the characters. So, yeah. And the story, to be honest, the characters and the story put together. Like, I do agree. I mean, I would would say that, like, I was thinking, like, most, I can't think of a lot of, like, in the broader category of genre fiction, like, in the movies, at least, like, or TV, like, I'm trying to think of what sci-fi or fantasy movies I've watched that were, like, action first. Um... As opposed to, like, you know. In fantasy, you see it less, for sure. Um, action first sci-fi. I mean, I guess, like, The Matrix? Um... Kind of, kind but like of. that first movie was good because it had cool ideas as well. You know what a I mean? Like a little bit. Like it seems like the only place that like the action serves a story most compellingly is like in your traditional like guns blazing action movie, like Commando or you know uh, John Wick or whatever. Um, Terminator Two, sci-fi sci-fi movie where really yeah, the, you know yeah. It was moving you to, from cool action set piece to cool action set piece. Um, that's fair. I mean, I guess, I, guess it, it is, I mean, we can say without doubt that like it's good. It's great to have both. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. And in I all think contexts. Another example of this, and this isn't the only thing where, you know, one trilogy gets it right. The other trilogy gets it wrong. But if you look at Lord of the Rings versus The <laughs> Hobbit. Mm-hmm. You can see um, one where it was much, obviously much more story and character focused in Lord of the Rings with some excellent action in it. But again, more in service of the broader story versus The Hobbit, where it really seemed like they were just moving from set piece to set piece and just trying to hit some Hobbit story beats. Yeah, that's there. for sure. That's a good that's um, a good comparison for yeah. sure. And even like the prequels to a degree, you could kind of see a little bit of I mean, I don't know. You could kind of go your way on that, I guess. But um anyway we're gonna talk about star wars some more then once we're gonna have a new movie in a couple weeks here oh my so god we are like two weeks two oh, and a half dude, weeks dude it really is two weeks oh shit <laughs> did you get your ticket yet no <laughs> no uh, i don't know i don't know yeah um not not super um you know what greg i'm committing to something Mm-hmm. Sometime. You know how you did a rebuilding the prequels? Oh, boy. I'm going to do a rebuilding the sequels. I believe in you. Um, I had the tools. I recently re-listened <laughs> to that episode because, um, you know, we, we, we're kind of at our three-year anniversary and I got a little nostalgic. So I went back and listened to some stuff uh-huh. and I, re, I re-listened to that. Um, 
you know, this that was a journey for me <laughs> to 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 do that. So I'm more power to you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'll be quite as detailed as you, but uh, yeah, I think I can do it. Um, but I really have to have an idea of like what they're going for in these last ones. The, the nice thing about the redoing the prequels is that you have a finite place where you got to where you know you're going to end up at. All right, I got to end up at the beginning of A New Hope. <laughs> Having a destination helps with writing, a you know, writing a story where it's like, like ah, who knows where they want to end it. Yes. But um, that should be interesting. But I'm going to try if I do, I'm going to try and not be like, well, I'll just we're going to, you know, copy this, you know, I. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'll think about it. No, I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about it. Okay. Except for when we talk about a show that is just so fucking good, man. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't get over yeah. it. Every episode, I'm like, all right, now's when it's going to shit the bed. And it's just like, nope. Yep. Yep. Um. So, obviously, Watchmen time. Dang. Um. Yeah. I, I will say that the feeling I had... In the last 30 seconds of that show, I have not had a like physiological, emotional response to a television show in, I mean, possibly ever. I'm not sure if I've ever had that moment that I had with that with another TV show. Yeah. Um, and I will say that um, having a quiet Trent Reznor piano rendition of David Bowie's Life on Mars being the musical cue, uh, that definitely dialed it way up for me, <laughs> um, which and that, that might not have clicked for. Well, I'm sure it didn't click for you, but um, nope. <laughs> yeah, uh, but holy shit. I mean, I could talk about just that particular choice for a very long time. But um, the the way they played it out, played out the reveal, because I was still just like, I'm not really sure what's going on. And it, like, you know, like, the, like and almost kind of like they did with to go back to Star Wars for a second, like with the Luke Kylo duel, we were kind of like, that's a little weird. That's a little oh, oh. like and then they, <laughs> yep. they tease it a little bit in different ways. And I mean, I'm curious now. I'm all I'm like already like, oh, I want to go back. And I'm like, are there other hints that some things there are? I've read a couple are. articles. That's awesome. I mean. He's fucking here, man. He's yeah, fucking I have here. a lot of questions. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it. I'm more interested now to go back and watch, because obviously the little clues about him, like some of the things that other people have pointed out is that like, oh, actually he's, he's uh, they're always costuming him in shades of blue. And, um, and I think you might've even mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes, he just has some very weird and very frank conversation with the kids about the afterlife in one of the earlier episodes, like episode two or three. And, you know, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, no, that is exactly what Dr. Manhattan would say. (laughs) Cause just like, yeah, there's no afterlife, you know, your consciousness just goes away. Like it's all just made up. What are you talking about? Um, and kind of weird and like inappropriate for kids, but, um, so those clues are there, but I'm much more interested to watch this again, knowing that this entire time she knows she is married to this like made up person who is a vessel for Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, because she knows it the whole time, too. Uh-huh. And as you're kind of getting there in the final reveal scene where her and uh, Lady True are down in Cerebro 
and um <laughs> you know um you're like oh he's hiding and all of a sudden your mind's like oh who is it who is it who is it who is it and at first you're like is it her you know is it is it angela and then um uh you're kind of ticking through who all these people it could be um and then you're like is that what this is that what like the next episode is going to be is like figuring out who is actually dr manhattan but then you you realize just as the scene plays out like oh no angela knows who it is um but i was it was it was very very good i was daft and didn't realize that angela knew who it was i just thought she was kind of freaking out and then when she went home i still was just like oh she doesn't know who it is like she's just she's looking for something i thought she's looking for a gun or something because she was worried and then when she got the hammer i'm like oh it's fucking her husband jesus the only the only i think they they gave the only real clue they gave and it was more not oh this was a hint the show dropped but it was more like just a oh yeah, they wouldn't have given us that little 30 second scene with him earlier in the episode if they didn't want to remind us about him, you know? Yeah, that he exists. I was like, oh, it's it's probably him because he just kind of popped up for no reason earlier in this episode. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's probably what's going on here. Yeah, I um, think that um, this is one of the – and we'll see how the rest of the show goes. And, you know, Lindenloff said that – I read an interview with, I think, Hollywood Insider he did. And basically it was just like – if I was you watching the show, I'd probably be like, how the fuck are we going to finish this in two episodes? He's <laughs> like, but just trust me, um, which, you know, we'll see. But uh, just the way he was talking about, like, the reveal and just you can tell that he just gets it, man. Just gets this show and or this this property, I guess. It also makes me be like, man, I kind of wish this season was like a little longer because I feel like if we would have spent a little more time with Angela and a little more time with Cal, it would have meant like even more for that reveal to happen. And, you know, especially in any more, some of these other players, like a little more time with lady true and, um, a little more time with just like everybody, I think would have me feeling a little bit more. Not that I'm not invested. The show is awesome. Just like a little more invested with everybody. Not that I'm saying I want them to throw in a bunch of filler because the pace of this show has been really interesting and it is, you know, short, which is good to a certain extent, but I'm just curious a little more emotional investment in some of these characters where where I'd be feeling right now. But anyway, yeah, I'm not sure because I feel like me not knowing what this means and you know, it's rare when a TV show like all of a sudden drops something on your like where you're like, oh shit, I have to rethink everything I thought I knew about this show. Mm-hmm. And I have a whole week to do it. You know, that that's rare. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that not knowing what any of this means and like, how does this, why is, why did they do this? Like, why is Dr. Manhattan locked away inside somebody's head? Because it's also not, you know, the, the nature of whatever disguise it was. It seems like the way that Manhattan and Angela set it up was that he was just going to be subsumed into this new personality of Cal, Mm -hmm. which clearly has some elements of Dr. Manhattan's personality, but doesn't remember that he's Dr. Manhattan. So it's like, why? (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting, speaking of, you know, you said not just looking at past that, you know, past episodes uh, and thinking about, watching Cal, but watching Angela is I think that it, it does go a little bit more to explaining why one of the reasons why she's, she always seems like she's a little on edge and also like more, maybe maybe more than she should be given that she's like a cop who was shot in her home or whatever, but also like why she sort of immediately reacts poorly to, uh, Laurie. Mm -hmm. Cause like 
and I hope it's not just it was not just only that, but like that's her, you know, person's act. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that sort of like not pettiness is not the right word, but you know what I mean? We're just like you're always gonna be a little bit like wary around your partner's ex because they're threatening right yeah and I, I even looking back at our notes from earlier episodes i was like i like this tension between angela and laurie but i don't get it you know why aren't they why isn't angela more on the side like why does she seem so cold and distrustful you know that the show hasn't really given me a reason to believe that and now you're like oh yeah no that would make sense of all the people to show up here right and not only is there maybe the just general human thing of like there's some kind of romantic rivalry at play here perhaps you know Angela feels threatened but also you know is it possible that Laurie might see something in Cal and get suspicious yeah like she's a you know masked vigilante investigator like she's in the FBI like right she you know she could be threatening to blow not even beyond like a romantic rivalry it could be threatening to like blow up this you know, perfect family that she has now. Right. And whatever secret they're like, why, why they're trying to keep Dr. Manhattan in hiding, right? Like they have some reason for that. Yeah. And that I'm sure we'll find out next episode, but you know, Oh, Laurie might blow our cover. She might, she might take a look in his eyes and say, John, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, Yeah. man. So a lot happened this episode boy, for sure. Um, I don't even know where to begin, man. Okay. Um, so I kind of, I in my notes, I kind of broke out the plot. Um, not in the exact sequence um, it appeared in the show, but more like just kind of the big blocks. You've got the Angela flashback block. Um, you've got the Angela recovering in Lady True's biodome block. You've got the uh, Vite block. And then um, you've got the more like conspiracy block. So the Angel flashback block, what we really get from that is we get a little bit of the backstory on like what life was like in 90s Vietnam, 80s, 90s Vietnam, let's call it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple details filled in about, you know, Angela's actual childhood and, you know, some some pretty interesting stuff of you've got these, you know, you've got this annexed state of Vietnam where there's the, you know, indigenous population that, you know, in some ways is, you know, happy to be quote unquote liberated by Dr. Manhattan and the United States. And then there's other folks who see it as an invasion and you're like, oh, that's interesting. But it's also this, you know, most of the Americans we see in Vietnam at that point are black, which I thought was an interesting little like I'm not sure what it all means, but um, my assumption would be that, you know, there's there's a disproportional representation of people of color in the military, especially as ground troops in Vietnam. Correct. So my assumption is that many of them, you know, didn't go back after it was liberated or something along those lines. That makes sense. Just one, you know, one perspective potentially but it's this kind of you know weird almost you know you've got these two racialized groups and like i i feel like there's a whole show just in that dynamic that could play out interesting Mm -hmm. neat um a nice bit of color a nice bit of world building Um, but i think the most interesting part that comes out of this kind of story block is we get the sense that angela's desire to become a cop is a little darker and maybe more sadistic and revengey than we initially imagined yeah that was pretty fucked up um 
that she, you know, when the when the cops showed up with the guy who was, you know, from the bomb plot um, and she identifies him. And at that point, she knows they're just going to take him around back and execute him. And she's like, I want to stick around for that. So the one that she knew what was going to happen and two that she wanted to know about it. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was like, oh, I want to be a cop someday so that maybe I can do that to people. So that yeah. was a little dark. And also that like. This is how the police work in Saigon in, you know, 90s, you know, what yes. I mean? like 80s, 90s Vietnam. Like it hasn't <laughs> been totally Americanized. Right. Like people just they find a criminal and they figure they take him out back and shoot him. Like, that's not how it works most of the time. <laughs> right. So so clearly the um, but then again, it also, you know, his story within the Watchmen world historically. Are we still in the Nixon administration at this point? I don't know. I'm actually going to. um. I'm curious the timeline. I'm going to try and look it up real quick while we sure. keep talking. But yeah. So, um, um, also part of that story block, there's a thing that I feel like felt like a very weird insert was the, the bit with her grandmother. So the character June, who we met in the last episode, uh, essentially Will's wife, estranged, now estranged. Uh, and thus Angela's grandmother comes to basically rescue Angela from the orphanage slash sweatshop where she is. Um making Dr. Manhattan dolls. Um, They have a little bit of a heart to heart. We learn a little bit about how June's story kind of wrapped up a little bit. Um, And she explains to Angela, we're going to take you home to Tulsa. That's where we're from. Um, And you're kind of like, okay, I, I, I see this is how she comes to America. And um, she is, and the, and June is going to help her like kind of change her point of view on masked people um because june was the person who initially pushed will to become a masked vigilante and she even they're talking in the restaurant and oh you know your father didn't like masked people because you know essentially because your dad was masked and and your dad didn't like that or your grandfather was masked dad didn't like it um but then grandma dies and we're kind of left unresolved with that plot point um, she just kind of keels over in the street underneath a defaced mural of Dr. Manhattan and that storyline kind of dangles. And that just felt very strange to me because it's like, okay, well now we have to get her from Vietnam to Tulsa again. So it's almost yeah, like, I mean, what was the point of this piece? It's not a good reason, but I think the point is like that she knows where she's from. Yeah, it just seems like because I quote unquote I, where she's from because her parents were estranged and maybe her parents never said where their family was originally from. It, you know, it just feels kind of needlessly complicated. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I feel like we could have got there some other way or we know in next episode, it, it, the previews imply that we're going to learn how Angela and Dr. Manhattan meet and how their relationship forms. And it looks like all of that takes place in Saigon with a more adult Angela. So couldn't we just have grandma be alive and being a figure in Angela's life for more than an hour? <laughs> yeah, I think part of it would be I kind of read it more like um, like it's almost like doubling down on the trauma and the same associations with the trauma. Right. Like, you know, she she meets her. She probably that memory for her is probably very important and very traumatic. Right. Because like she finally gets this glimmer of hope that she's going to be you know rescued by her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And they have this conversation about sister night and vigilantes and, you know, um, you know, violence and stuff. She her grandmother's a little like harsh. Uh, and then she dies. And it's, once again, her life is ripped apart and, you know, the carpet pulled off from under her and. 
So I feel like maybe just doubling down that like this is this is Angela's life is particularly bad and the trauma is so closely associated with um you know criminal justice and masks and sister night in particular that like this is why you know the, to Laura Blake's point this is why she like pursues this route right I don't know that's kind of hard yeah right? but no I it just felt weirdly compressed and chopped up to me it just it just felt like a it felt rushed and it just didn't feel complete um in a way that this show often feels very very intentional and clever and one of the ways they did that in this episode is where you know that Angela is having this flashback but it's intercut with bits of Will's memories as well and it works really well because Will's memories are in black and white and hers are in color so it was just this little thing they did in the previous episode that seemed like just kind of a stylistic kind of obvious on the nose way of saying it's a memory and it's set in the past to do it in black and white but now we have that tool in the later episodes so that we can we can show how her memories and Will's memories are like getting intertwined with a very easy visual cue and that's the kind of cleverness and like tight writing and design that this show has and then this particular thing just felt did not feel clever or tight it just felt all loosey-goosey and like well we know she's got to hear about Tulsa we know she's got to have a moment with her grandmother but we also need her to still be an orphan at the end of this episode so how do we do that we have 10 minutes to solve it because they're going to start filming you know what I mean that's what it felt like to me I had that feeling more I had that similar feeling more so when Laurie confronts uh Jane Judd oh I actually really like that scene there's parts of it I really like like the whole the what happens, it just feels like I like what happened, but just what it feels weird. So, you know, um, I, I don't know. Like it, it was just it didn't seem like her. She's always so in control. And I liked the fact that she was sort of like flippant, but her flippancy went into like kind of like stupidity. And I didn't like that so much because Laurie's anything but stupid. We've been shown. And the second that she pulls like reveals that she obviously knows and she's just like still sitting there not reacting just yeah, seems like like weird the lori blake we've seen earlier in this show would have had her gun drawn at that moment exactly that's what felt weird to it to me but you're right um, you're the right. rest of it was pretty pretty cool though yeah no i i like that scene you, you know you're right i think that that's was inconsistent characterization for lori um but I very much like the quick subversion of oh now okay yep now the the villainous is going to confess to her plan um and we're going to get all superhero you know super villainy here for a minute but then when she pulls out the, like the 70s ass remote control for the trap door and it doesn't work and they just have this awkward moment of like what are you doing and then when the trap door opens up and just the sound design was just so good of yeah. her falling into some basement and it just sounded so like broken and bad and just like janky and shitty. It's hard. to I, I can't explain it, but it just it sounded like she just fell into their basement and like fell on their plastic Christmas tree. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I love that, that it was that it was that this idea that, you know, they, they live in this world of costumed heroes where superheroes and supervillains are real. And uh, Mrs. Judd, I can't remember his name. Crawford, Mrs. Crawford, yeah. you know, finally gets what like her supervillain moment, and then the trap door doesn't work. Yeah, and then when it actually happens, like there's just something tawdry and mundane about like the sound of it. I just love that that like like oh we're getting supervillainy, and then oh no it exists in our world and things don't work, and they were installed in the seventies, and you know it's just great, it's great. Um, 
But then that leads us to another villain monologue where we find out that the 7th Cavalry's goal is to turn Senator Keene into a new Dr. Manhattan. This scene was one of my favorites of the episode. Yeah. Like, Laurie's reaction to, like, the villain monologue, she's just, like, so just like, oh, my God, like, this again? Like, just get it over with. Tell me your plan. I'm so bored. Like, I'm annoyed. Um, And your reaction to stuff he says, like, you know, kind of tropey, but just like... I'm not racist. It's just hard to be a white man. It's just like, you know, unfortunately, they're not funny because the stuff that people actually stay and believe, but done in a really way, a good way that like that is something people think and believe in modern 2019. And it is an example of racist. You know, what I mean, this is what race this is how racist brains well, operate. She sees through the performance of it. Right. And that's one of the things that Laurie, Laurie's character is, is she she sees through all the performative elements of this world that they all live in. And that kind of even that vaguely intellectualized racism is performative because the people who think and feel that way, they don't honestly. And I here I am reading the minds of racists, but just for the sake of argument, they don't honestly believe that, oh, no, this isn't about race. This is just about opportunity and balance. And, you know, now it's just gotten to the point where now the white people are oppressed and I'm against the Nobody actually believes that. That's just a performance to mainstream their idea, their real idea, which is I should be on top because I'm white. I should be in charge because I am white. That is the that's the thinking. The rest of it is just this performative intellectualization. Um, and she sees through that. And 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 even when he's she's like expecting the the performative villainy of, you know, uh, oh, my daddy wanted me to be the best, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, ugh. And then she just gets this other performative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just I mean, I think in this context, like I'm going to disagree slightly. I think that like in this context, Yes, because like Keen is the mastermind, so of course he's thought through it, and it is performative. I think for your average seven, you know, seven cab member, like probably they might probably believe that. I do think people in the real world do would, you know, having been learning a lot about this, like do really feel that way. It's still racism. It's just not what we think of as you know. I think it's well traditional racist ideas. I mean, I'll meet you halfway. I'll say believed but unexamined. Yes, I think that they've been that 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 in many ways, and that's the mainstreaming effect. Is it gives somebody who has that type of idea hasn't really thought it through, but now you're giving them a convenient model to put that idea into. But if they really sat down and really analyzed what they were thinking about and looked at the world and said, "Yeah, no, it's not. This argument yeah. doesn't really hold up." But my feelings still are still there. Yeah, no, I believe you halfway. I'll say like the people who created those narratives are performing it and therefore gets picked up by a lot of people who aren't, aren't examining it critically. Right. Um, who have yeah. the same so, and, root feelings, but maybe haven't, haven't fully examined them. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I just love that. Just her once again, like it, it was like, that's like the juxtaposition of that scene and what she comes, you know, Jane Crawford is like, ah, like, you know, she just seems so like dumb in that one scene. And then she's so smart in this scene. And so, and just like over just like the dramatics of it all, just like, ugh, I'm just like, and like the, the ridiculousness, what she say one thing, like the silliness at some point, yeah. like, this is all silly. Like this is silly. This is what I used to play when I was a kid. You know yep. what I mean? Like, and I'm like, get over yourself. But then he really just like scares the shit out of her. And it's like, by the way, this is, this is what's going to happen. And then she kind of shuts up, which is good. So 
Yeah. Um, I think that when it comes to like, we get a lot of info dumping from Lady True uh, back with Angela. I think these things happen out of order, but whatever. Um, you know, trying to, to do the treatment on Angela to fix her brain after she <laughs> jumbled it real good. Mm-hmm. Um, I We were right that she was a clone, although I assumed it was a clone of her, but it is that our True's daughter was a clone, but not a clone of her, but of her mother, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, she says she harvested her mother's memories, um, which, okay. Um, I feel like we're getting a little into the super science, a little too super science-y with some of this stuff, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I'm beginning to wonder, like, I'm trying to think, I'm going to help myself here, but so we know that True is an expert on memories. We also know that True is, has access or has worked with Will's captured mind controlling devices yep i really wonder if this millennium clock i mentioned this before but like is some sort of like projector to erase people's racism or something like that like i I don't know i just can't help there's while angela's kind of walking around the facility towards the end we're getting bits and pieces of like true's like kind of launch speech for the clock or something like that Mm mm-hmm it's all very kind of vague and cryptic, but she talks about how like the the problem with nostalgia was people got obsessed with their painful memories, which was keeping them away from the future. Hmm. And I get the impression the clock is somehow supposed to counter that. So what is it going to do? Is it going to erase everybody's memory of something? Is it going to erase everyone's memory of the squid and thus um, allow people to move on from that, like, shared global trauma? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because it, it has to do something. Well, I would assume it has to do something that's going to counteract the bad guy's plan or mitigate it in some way, right? It, it would seem like it ha- they, the, the two have to be linked because she says I'm trying to save mankind, right? Yeah. Not just improve everybody's quality of life by helping everybody move on. Like she's she's like she's going to save mankind. That seems more dire than just everybody will be happier if we get over this squid thing. Right. And she puts it in the context of like I'm saving humankind because we need to stop this plot. Right. And there's there's clearly a timing thing because she right. is planning to it the timing of the timeline that Keen kind of laid out when he was talking to Glass and the timeline of when True's going to switch on the clock, they seem like they're going to be happening like at the same time, right? Like they're working against the same deadline. Mm-hmm. So and she seems to know a lot about their plan. So it would be weird if she's got this clock thing going on and then she also wants to foil their leave, their their evil plan. But those are two separate projects. You're right. Um, but I still haven't put all the pieces together yet. No, I, ha- I haven't yet either. Because we also have Vite in the mix. Do we? Potentially. I don't know. Part of me is like, maybe this isn't going to link up with anything. And it's just like a little character study of just like, because I, I feel like I said it. Maybe I didn't say it. If I didn't say it and I'm taking credit for it. You wrote in here a little far down that. So we, in this episode, we get Vite on trial. Yep. It's a pretty fucking weird scene. Yes. Um, we yes. Realize we've been told it's been happening for a year. Yep. And, you know, we, we've been kind of picking up and it's been confirmed that every scene we've had with Vite has been effectively a year apart because the anniversaries are, you know, each year of his time there. Oh, interesting. Um, and so each each episode has been a year later, more or less. So 
his attempts at escape have been happening since 2012, which is, you know, when he disappeared. I, had, I think I said, maybe I didn't, but I feel like I had I did have that idea. Like, maybe he built this prison for himself as penance, right? Yeah. Which is what you have a theory about. Because like you said, in this episode, when he's in that courtroom and he gets, you know, they're laying out what he's done, he looks genuinely guilty. Yeah, once they start, once they bring in the pigs and they start just yelling at him, he seems emotionally affected by the whole thing. Because at first he's like clearly not taking it seriously. Right. But then he's he, he definitely starts to be affected by it, which is why I and it's during that th- where, you know, you know, they're, they're basically saying you're you're no better than a pig and you're guilty, 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 guilty. He seemed moved. I'm also I also missed when he set up his message and it said, save me. I missed that it started something, another word. And that word started with a D. Yeah. So everyone's assuming that it's save me, Dr. Manhattan. I don't know if we have any other. So I don't think it would be Dr. Manhattan. You don't think so? No. Because I think Dr. Manhattan made this prison or had something to do with prison. I don't know. Well, because I think that um, he always referred to him as John. Mm, that's true. Maybe it was Dan. So that that's so that's a possibility, too. So that would be Dan Dryberg, Night Owl, mm-hmm. who is currently in prison. Um, although from Pedia entries, we learned that at some point post post comic, he became kind of a technology mogul mm-hmm. um, because there's the blueprint for the Dr. Manhattan sex toy that he designed for Laurie. <laughs> But it's on this like, you know, Merlin Industries blueprint paper or something. So the suggestion is like, you know, he became a like, you know, um, tech guru. Yeah. Um, So theoretically that, you know, there could be technological elements there. And presumably given the time lapse, Vite wouldn't necessarily know that Night Owl wasn't there to rescue him. But two things there. I mean, in that interview, I think Lindelof said that we will not be seeing. Yeah. Uh, Dan Dryberg. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that could be a lie, but let's take him at his word. Um, two, I think it's pretty clear that it's a true satellite that sees him. Yeah. Because it, also in Pedipedia things, there's something about how she released, you know, a whole bunch of satellites, observation satellites into the solar system. Um, yeah. So who else could be a D? I couldn't, I like really racked my brain and I couldn't come up with one, but... Unless, like, do we know Lady True's first name? We don't. Although, apparently, that's her name name. That's not, like, some code name for her. I wasn't sure if it was her last name or her. Yeah, the PDPedia stuff gives her mother's name and basically says, like, Lady True is her... She named herself after uh, a Vietnamese folk hero. Yeah, which I just um, found from Googling. But, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, it's... It, it, it's I don't know. It, it's very unclear who that, who that D could be. Yeah, I'm still, like... Very confused on how Vite is going to get worked into this storyline, if at all. Well, so you brought up in our notes that um, back in episode three or four, whenever we got introduced to Lady True in that semi-flashback where something crashes in Tulsa right after she gets the um, farm Mm -hmm. land where she's going to build her start the clock. Yeah. um, That could be Vite, you know, kind of crash landing. And, you know, she knew that was going to, you know, she knew that was going to happen. Um, and for that has something to do with her positioning. Why Tulsa? Yeah. Um, but then also there's this line where she's talking to Angela true. when she's talking to Angela and she talks about like her father will be here soon. And we have no idea who her father is. Yeah. Um, could it be Vite? It could be. 
could explain the intellect and the statue of him in the yeah. garden. Hmm. That was a weird. That was definitely a weird comment. And oh yeah, they wanted us to think about it. Yeah. I oh I don't. That sounds. Or maybe you know maybe it's it could be even a you know euphemism or something maybe not like biologically refined but in some way she considers him her father or what, I don't know something like that but yeah yeah that seems right but then what fell if he's not here yet or maybe he's being maybe she cloned him I don't know there's a lot of <laughs> options here we're in weird territory yeah it's it's th- there's there's not enough here for for me to kind of. Um, figure it out well if we just come up with every idea possible then we're going to be right when we you know inevitably yeah so it comes out um so there's it, it kind of seems like we are the quote-unquote good guys and bad guys are kind of established now mm-hmm. although i think the rub could very easily be pulled out on from under us because this is watchman yeah but if you've got your good guys which is angela Dr. Manhattan, Glass, who we learn is still alive and definitely not on the side of the 7th Cavalry. Nah, he killed all them dudes. Um, I was so excited when that hey, happened. by the way, the, the, the one guy who was unmasked, did you, because they, they they made a point of, of showing us that guy's face and talking about how he was unmasked. Did, did you recognize that person at all? Or? No, I assumed it was the guy, the, the one other guy we saw that picked up the girl. Okay. But I... Okay. Cool. I, I just so you. if if you didn't get it and I didn't get it, that means it's not necessarily my fault for missing it. Yeah. Maybe we just okay. So uh Glass, Laurie, Petey. I would those are like our good guy, good guys, as far as I can tell. Like the clearest thing we can say of like these are protagonists, right? Yeah. Um and then you've got the bad guys, very clearly drawn, Senator Keene, the seventh cavalry, and now the rest of the Tulsa Police Department, because it yeah. it kind of it kind of Laurie's conversation with Jane and then the interaction between Angela and Red Scare and Pirate Jenny really seemed like, oh, yeah, no, the most of the police department is Cyclops, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I think that my interpretation with at least Jane or with uh, Pirate Jenny and Red Scare was that like the police is being directed by, I assume, Keen. Yes. I'm not sure if they're positive. They know they're like that. They're right. I think they might just be doing their jobs, but I'm not positive about that. Right. Like, they were told, like, Angela's under arrest, you know, which is true. Like, Laurie arrested Angela. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't... So, I, they might just be, like... I don't know if they consumed their Cyclops or some of the cavalry, but the I think the police uh, department as an organization is now a tool of the bad guys. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm looking at Cyclops as the big bad that is running 7th Cavalry and running the police department. Because Jones said that basically... Um, the goal was to pit these two masked groups against each other so that the public would lose all their faith in who's good and who's bad. Yeah. Um, which is very poignant for the world we live in today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> of just massive uh, intentional confusion and obfuscation and no one knows what is true anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so those are clearly the bad guys. And then you've got this other group of True, Will, and maybe Vite. I don't know if they're all aligned, but they're kind of the wild cards right now. Yeah. We don't I mean, really- it seems like True is either good or good in the way that Osmond Dias is. You know, like she's either, we don't know what her plan is. Right. But it's not as bad as the really bad guys. And I don't think I don't think they're going to do the same trick that I was reading someone's write up of, you know, a good encapsulation of the comic was it deconstructed. One of the ways it deconstructed superhero tropes was it made the good guy and the bad guy the same guy. 
Yeah, I read that same thing. And I agree that, like, I think that because she kept saying, I'm going to save humanity, that's the same kind of words that Veidt used in the comic. And I think that they wanted us to think that she was the bad guy because that's there in the comic. But in reality, maybe not so much. But I'm not sure. We're still, I'm still trying to put together what her plan is. Cause I kind of was thinking about, like, um, and as you aptly called it, it's at the Cerebro room. Like, why is she collecting all that information? Is it just to learn more about people and build models and things is it to or is there some reason that she's collected all these prayers effectively so she knows that manhattan isn't on mars we don't know how she knows that but she knows that he is hiding out as a human and i think that's been going on for like 10 years i think that was the number that was thrown out there I think so. So she built the phone booths. She built the supposedly the telescope that allows Earth to look at him on the moon. And presumably she built those things after she found out that he wasn't there. So the telescope is clearly all just a big scam. She's just running some kind of footage of a blue guy on Mars, easy to fake, um, which is interesting about why we saw that footage of him, you know, messing around with a structure that looks a lot like Veet's manor. Um, assuming all that footage is faked by her people. Yeah, either fake or old. Yeah. Um, but she would need to, she couldn't just loop old footage. She'd have to, you know. Yeah, that's um, true. So she is clearly invested in keeping up the myth of Dr. Manhattan and making sure that the public at large thinks he's still up on the moon um, and thinks that he is interested in their thoughts and prayers and that he's listening. Now, why that's important to her plan is anybody's guess, but we can assume that those things are a piece of her plan. Um, Probably because she thinks that the idea of him being there and listening to them and watching over humanity to a certain extent gives them some kind of hope. I'm sure she'll explain it. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But I'm also wondering, like, is there some technical component, right? That, like, she's going to use them for something. Like, why would she collect them and have that Cerebro room if it wasn't for something? Right. And, oh, no, that, that and that's a very good, that's a very good point. Otherwise, these, you know, why exactly, why bother recording them and, you know, building a cool interface for it if it, um, uh, you know, if it was like children's letters to Santa. <laughs> Just a little big <laughs> box. Um Unless there's any kids listening, and then Santa is really very real. Oh, man. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like she she has some kind of, like, spiritual emotional mission. Something about memory and hope and all those things. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. I can't really well, see where it's going from here. No, I can't. I can't either. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's some questions we have here. Like, you know, how, how does she know that Dr. Manhattan was in Tulsa? Yeah. You know, and my, one of my questions is, because I'm thinking a lot about, get ahead a little bit, but we see in the preview for the next episode that Dr. Manhattan is sort of describing his like, oh, I, I kind of experienced time in a different way mm-hmm. and, you know, can kind of see the future, but like not really, but kind of. I've always been a little vague on like how that all works. Uh, cause you can't make it all work. But I think that I'm curious if like whatever device or mechanism that he used to like effectively turn himself off for 10 years or whatever, did that like interfere with it? Like did, is, could he not, cause he doesn't quote unquote exist during that time. Does he, does that mean that's like a blank spot to him in the same way that, 
you know, whatever Vite did with the tachyons in the original comic kind of mess with his foresight. I don't know. Yeah, it's unclear. It's all very unclear. <laughs> I mean, the, the preview makes it seem like he he foresaw the events that um, he foresaw the events that we'll see in the next episode because he says something like you hear his narration over a gunfight where he says, you'll try to save me. Um, I, you know, I, I'll tell you not to save me, but you'll try anyway or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, like, why. So they, so presumably they need him to help stop whatever plan the bad guys are cooking up, which is to make a new racist Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. By killing him from the sounds of it. Yeah. That's, un- well, it doesn't or matter how the MacGuffin way, works. But, yeah. um, but clearly, if you're going to make a new Dr. Manhattan to, you know, do your racist plan. You don't want the real Dr. Manhattan around to stop you. So whether or not he's involved in the creation of new Dr. Manhattan, who um, let's call Dr. Mobile, Alabama, um, <laughs> he or they just want him out of the picture. It's unclear. Uh, but that, that yeah, is just kind of fiddly, not really as important. Um, I just I feel like there are just enough dangling threads left that. And I think this is this is how you want a like loose ends, mystery based kind of thing to work is that there's still a lot of loose ends. But but because of the way the show has run so far, I am confident that they're all going to pay off. But also I'm I'm confident that all of these things will like the number of loose ends that are out there, like they're going to coalesce. And I just can't see the big picture yet, but but they're all going to lock into place. And two episodes feels just about right to get there. Do you know what I mean? They All the loose ends feel relevant and connected in a way that I just can't see yet. The only one that doesn't feel connected is the who we assume is PD in like the lube suit. But that feels like why was that in here so far? But I don't know. That's the only one that feels disconnected. And also like the squid falls seem like I mean, maybe it won't be connected although there was pretty some pretty heavy squid imagery when they're eating lunch or whatever which i couldn't tell was just like general watchman imagery shift or like related to like implying that true is behind the squid falls i don't know but i think that you know i at this point i'd be content to at least for the second one to write off i'd be like oh like that's someone doing that because they're trying to basically just like continually remind people like no 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 don't start fighting among yourselves big bad squids out there Right. And I think that that fits in logically with Veidt's plan from the comic and thematically with the show. So the, the logical thing is, look, if Veidt is this mastermind and has all this technology at his disposal to do this thing, and this is his big plan, you would think that he would build into his plan some kind of periodic reminder of the threat, right? Mm-hmm. He would want people to stay on their toes, because theoretically, eventually, people would get it in their head that, well, maybe the squid was just a fluke and maybe we're safe now. Yeah. And we can go back to fighting with each other. So you would think that would be built in. And then I think there's something again, because there's a th- an overarching theme here is trauma and the way it motivates us. And this idea of continually revisiting trauma on people. You know, like glass has never really fully been able to heal from the the initial incident. And one of the reasons is because these squid falls keep happening and reminding him and Mm -hmm. renewing his obsession. 
you know? Yeah. And, and then we just, see the reliving of trauma in Angela, you know, through, through Will's memories. And it, to me, it implied that perhaps Will might have gotten addicted to n- nostalgia, reliving his traumatic memories. Hmm. Because as she was saying that, we were getting some of those flashbacks. Oh, interesting. You know, like she was saying that over her, you know, her during her speech, we were mm-hmm. seeing flashes of like him as a kid in the in the massacre and like him in New York and, you know, all these bad things happening. I wonder if like, you know, that could be something that happened to him. I don't know that it could be another insight into his motivations and his connections to true and whatnot. Yeah, he keeps he keeps reinflicting that trauma on himself. Vite keeps reinflicting trauma on the world. Hmm. Hmm. There's so much going on here, man. I know. Remember we just talked about, you know, dragons and how long it took to fly from Winterfell to the wall and back. <laughs> well, see, that's what happens when your show is bad. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that this is yeah. It's truly like interesting, you know, and I was doing reading some comments about the episode because people were just everyone just seems ecstatic about the show and everyone's just like, oh, it's you know, kind of initially built as like a mini series and people are like, oh, you know, what about a second season? Now the starting to remember is like, eh, maybe there will be a second season, who knows? But like someone suggested I started a comment and you're gonna be able to talk more about this than I do because I don't know the context, but people were saying like maybe they should make this be like Fargo, where like each season is just like a self contained storyline in the world or something like that. And I know, hope not. But I don't know what that means, but I, 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 I really hope they don't. I really hope they don't. This is it, this is this should be entirely self-contained. Yeah, it's on path to be such a good self-contained story. I mean, the only reason I want more is just the purely selfish. Like, I want more good television like this. Yeah. And the mystery and stuff is so alluring and attractive. But I don't actually want more of this specific story. No, and I, 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 and it's that thing of you know I want to I want to tune into the world of Watchmen during its most interesting moments, mm-hmm. and if you did another season that was just ooh this is another story that takes place within the Watchmen world, it's like well either now this world is having interesting moments all the time or um uh or the the stakes just don't work, and I don't think this is a world where you can do smaller things like the Mandalorian. I think it's it's just like no Watchmen is about the is about he you know really big ideas like heroism and saving the world and all of those things. Um, I don't then no please don't please just just walk away from this when it's done. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I just worry that the critical success is going to uh make HBO get dollar signs in their eyes and force it somehow. But we can hope not. Um, no, I think we pretty much covered everything that I was thinking and feeling. I mean, at this point, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, this is one of those episodes where I just like stood up at the end. I was like, what the fuck? And just like, <laughs> just like, what are we doing? Like, it's just so, so good. Yeah. I, I mean, I just want to talk a little bit about the about the song at the end. I OK, mean, obviously, there's there's the um, there's the. The obvious connection, the song is called Life on Mars, and it actually ends with a question mark in the actual title of the song. Um, But and that that question is kind of a prominent line in the chorus of the song. But the um, the 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 lyrics of the song kind of paint a picture of a girl going to the movies and finding what she's seeing on the screen to be, even though it's all these fantastic things on the screen uh, finding those things to be ultimately kind of hollow and 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 
surfacey um and and ultimately kind of boring and dull um so the connection because this this show is in many ways a commentary on the Watchmen film and in some ways superhero films in general um so there's that connection with again this song is about movies being kind of shallow and we the imagery i mean this this show opens with will reeves watching a movie <laughs> and then for movie screens and movie projectors to be a very important element of will reeves's story um and the overall concept of narratives and imagery and all of that being an overarching theme of the show <coughs> and there's a the one of the line in in the um one of the choruses of the song is you know talking about what's um what's on the screen take a look at the law man beating up the wrong guy oh man wonder if he'll ever know it's the freakiest show holy shit guys <laughs> <laughs> holy shit guys and that's all just for me cuz i know the song that they're alluding to right. with the um with that piano oh man that Very got strange. me man that got me i totally got all that too i was right there with you the whole time i'll also point out that uh again just with the weird metatextual relationships with ryan murphy and american horror story one of the series uh of american horror story the freak show series uh that same song life on mars played a pretty prominent role in that show huh. <laughs> just to continue to just make all the weird lines although that's just a little kind of little you know serendipitous thing it's, it's more the, the imagery in the song matching the imagery and the themes of the show i thought was just like hachi machi <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome that's really cool i mean i hope that all that was purposeful um seems unlikely that it wasn't at least a little bit for somebody well i mean knowing that you know trent reznor and um atticus ross are you know the, the kind of uh they, they do the score and presumably, although they're not credited as like musical directors, um, you know, Trent Reznor is a pretty big David Bowie fan, um, actually worked with David Bowie a lot uh, in the in the late 90s. They did a couple albums together. Bowie did a lot of guest spots. They toured together. Um, I can't imagine that th those connections were lost on Trent Reznor as he was, you know, maybe selecting that song. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any firm predictions about the ending of the show? Hmm. Do I have firm predictions for the ending of the show? No, I, I don't. I really, I, I feel like I've identified the themes, but I don't really know how it all adds up. And I don't really know what the thesis of the show is yet. Do you know what I mean? I feel very similarly. I couldn't say one way or another, like me mechanistically how things are going to play out. Part of me wants to say that, like, if they are truly trying to end this show or end this, have this be a true, just like finite sequel, you end some way where perhaps Dr. Manhattan no longer exists. That would be a pretty bold move. But I think that it's something that, you know, will then remove some of the, you know, makes you wonder less about the future of this universe. Right. To a certain degree. Um, but I'm not really sure how it would fit in with any of the themes or anything. Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I, I do think this is going to be self-contained. I think Lindelof has been teasing a continuation in some interviews, but <laughs> um, oof, didn't, didn't get the mute button on time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
he's been teasing that, but I think that is solely a hype building promotional thing. Like he's been in television long enough. I think that he knows that if, you know, we're coming in on the closer here, you want to make sure that you're you're building up as much hype as you can for people to watch the show and teasing a second season might generate some secondary headlines. Sure. Um, and if anything, saying at this stage, oh, no, this is it. It's done after this. There will be no more. Yeah, that will pro- that might turn off more people than not. I don't know. It's, it's a weird calculation. But I, I feel like in earlier interviews and in earlier press, he was really talking about how like, no, this is this is a one and done. This we're not you know, this is not an ongoing, you know, sort of thing. Um now, HBO might decide to do something different with it, but I doubt it. I mean, it's DC that wants to keep Watchmen making money every year so that they can retain the rights to the characters. So I'm sure there will be future Watchmen properties just in order to, again, keep the keep things rolling. But I, I, I don't see this. I, I, there's going to be a definitive ending. It's going to have something to do with narratives and how narratives shape our culture and asking us to think about who is in charge of those narratives. Um, and it's going to have to have something to do with race. Yep. Um, and trauma, potentially. And race, trauma, and narratives are, are kind of the big three here. So Yeah, no, that's good. But yeah, there we go. All right. Man, these next two episodes, boy. Uh, I mean, I feel like it's a little frustrating that we're going to come off of Watchmen, which will probably be one of the high points of 2019 <laughs> and then be like cool next episode i guess we gotta talk about fucking star wars <laughs> that's true but on the bright side uh the review embargo is not up yet but uh the early reactions to which are pretty positive yeah i i've been seeing the same headlines um i'm I'm in, I'm I'm excited for that. I actually started playing The Witcher 3 again this weekend cuz it was like $12 or something on <laughs> PlayStation Store for Black Friday and I was like, yeah, all right. I'll I'll get back into this. And that game is much more digestible than I remember. Like it is it it's much easier to like jump in for an hour, knock out a quest and then walk away than I than I remembered. Yeah. Um which makes it kind of nice right now. Um but also as I was playing it, I remembered that like, yeah, man, the world of The Witcher is really fucking good. Yeah, it's cool. Um, um, my advice to you as someone who still is working on it but hasn't finished yet, just like just equip the best thing you got and just keep on moving. Like, don't spend the time in the inventory, like, you know, make the alchemist stuff, but like just fight, just fight stuff. So <laughs> so you're saying I should not have spent um, all of my weekend playtime just going through and collecting all the Witcher School uh, armor diagrams? No, because those are quests. That's, that's what fine. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are quests is fine, but I just mean that like I started getting bogged down in like, all right, is this sword better than that sword? Yeah, okay, but, no, it, but is that sword better than this sword? And it's like, no, it doesn't fucking matter. Just hit him with it. Like, yeah, thing, the game is not hard enough to dictate that you need to like power game your no. If you, all that you get often. the get the oils right, and you're you're there. Yeah. Yeah. And even then it's like, yeah, if you want, <laughs> like just dodge a lot. You're probably fine. Yeah. Dodge, dodge, hit, hit, dodge, dodge, hit, hit. Right. See, Andrew, you could play Dark Souls. I could. Dodge, I just... dodge, hit, hit. Actually, it's more like <laughs> dodge, 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 hit, dodge, 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 heal, repeat. <laughs> Great. That sounds like a lot of fun. 
no, the reason I like The Witcher is because I can just like, eh, I can kind of just like bullshit my way through this fight if I need to. There was a time where I was struggling in the game, but then at some point I just got, I must like over leveled myself and now I'm just kind of like, eh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, um, I guess I'll see you when there's only one Watchmen episode left to, to go and we're like dying. We are going to be dying. Next episode looks good, too. I'm excited that they I'm, I'm curious. At first, I didn't like it, but now it's starting to come around to you. They decided to, like, not make him a CG character and just, like, paint him blue. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a feeling that they're going to play with that a little bit. Yeah, um, I could also see, like, you know, or kind of going back and forth or. Yeah. Because we'll there's see. a glow when she takes the little symbol out of yeah. Cal's head. And but then it does just seem like they just painted the guy blue. Um, so I don't know. I, I, like I'm when not his sure. powers are also, active, you know, he'll like glow or something. But he but he's also wearing a suit when we see him in um, in the previews. And that might actually be something because. OK, so Dr. Manhattan is kind of unstuck in time, right? Mm hmm. And he doesn't experience time linearly. And one of the visual cues in the comic, as you see him kind of through the ages, is he starts out in kind of a standard superhero getup. And then it's like this kind of black like tank top and briefs thing. And then it's just the briefs. And then he's totally naked. Like as he becomes less and less, as he kind of abandons his humanity more and more, he's like wearing less and less clothes. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that the Dr. Manhattan that we see in the previews is further along in our timeline than what we saw in the comics, but in his own personal timeline, he's younger? Like it's a it, it is an it is a version of Dr. Manhattan that is still wearing suits, because I think there's actually I'm recalling images of him in the comics, like in the 60s, just like at a dinner party wearing a suit. He wears a suit to the comedian's funeral. Huh. Slightly throws a wrench in your... Oh, yeah. That's fair. Thing. All right. Well... But, um, but I mean, it's an interesting idea, though. We do... You know, that is an image of him, like, in a suit, so could still be unstuck at different points. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm i really curious to see how they handle that, because that's a really hard... It's a very hard concept to write a story with a character who experiences time that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... I'm I, anyway, I'm, I'm very interested to see how they... What they do with him, and I also how they do tell a weird timey-wimey Dr. Manhattan story at the same time giving me what feels like some pretty climactic action. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean action in terms of like gunfights, although we're clearly going to get a gunfight, but like right. we definitely need climactic plot movement here. You know, yeah. like we are we are at the we are at the plot climax. For so sure. doing those things side by side is going to be a tricky needle to thread. But at this point, I have faith they know what they're doing. Me too. No loss here, hopefully. All right. Well, All right. we should put this. We should. We should. I mean, I, I'm going to be thinking about Watchmen until Sunday night. Yeah. So we got to cut this off. Yep. All right, buddy. All right. Later. See ya.